1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Strain your eyes against the sky and find no trespass for a hundred miles. The rubber peeled from your brake to rim and no sign of wings on southern wind. If the boss is calling and bills are due but there'll be no chores until you're through. If your boots are east and west or in between on frozen rock or soggy green. If the birds are calling and smoke is due and there'll be no rest until you're through. If the treasure you seek is in the hunt, you've arrived at the foul front. All right, we're good. All right, welcome to the foul front. Today, I've got a special guest um, joining me, um, actress um, Gabriella Hoffman, who was in Field of Dreams, Uncle Buck, um, and as recently as Sleepless in Seattle. How are we doing, Gabriella? Oh, that's not right, Good. is it? That's not right. <laughs> uh, it happens often. Sometimes I've had a, I think Deborah Messing once tagged me under my somewhat of a namesake, uh, but I wasn't even born when Field of Dreams, or I was, I think I was born when Field of Dreams came out. I was born in 91, but I wasn't around when Uncle Buck was there. So it's fun. Um, it's a common jest, <laughs> a great icebreaker, uh, but, but. Uh, you know, kind of like a funny running joke sometimes, but yeah, no, not her, but often confused for her. <laughs> <At times. laughs> well, good deal. Good deal. You just recently had a birthday. No. Um, so Gabriella Hoffman, um, tell us a little bit about, um, let's start off with what you do, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how you got to that, who you are and, and why you do it. Absolutely. Well, kind of a Cliff Notes version on my background. I have Worked in politics for the better part of like a decade. I also am a prolific political columnist. I'm also an award-winning outdoor writer. And my primary occupation is working as a media strategist and consultant. So I do a lot in public relations, social media, digital marketing. And I also do a lot in consulting, uh, whether it's from a general business perspective, um, networking, coalition building. I've had clients who have asked me to help foster better relations on the Hill, not lobbying, but more so coalition building. And, and those are very two stark different things. I didn't need to register as a lobbyist for those asking. Um, but you can do a lot of coalition building. And, and I've done a lot of that and kind of run the gamut on helping people get better branding, better 
earned media opportunities and the like. So I've done a lot. I also run the District of Conservation podcast, which I've hosted for the better part of almost two and a half years. I also have written for a multitude of publications, political and not political. I've also been in a lot of outdoor media publications like Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, Sporting Classics, uh, The Virginia Sportsman, and been interviewed by a lot of people in endemic or uh, not so friendly to hunting, fishing publications to kind of talk about firearms, talk about hunting, talk about fishing. So I've kind of been there behind the scenes, outward facing. Uh, so I've, I've been behind the scenes out front all over the place representing clients and also having a bit of a platform myself. So I've kind of tackled a lot of different dimensions, uh, but it's, it's really good to talk to you. And I would love to share more about my background and kind of my perspective with your listeners. If so, despite the the podcast, um, what is the the work that people could um, search out that you're most like it represents you best or that you're most proud of? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I would defer people to my business website. I have a list of case studies of some work I'm really proud of, and I still have to update it. I think, or at least update the homepage with certain links to some work, but I've, I'm really proud of helping startups, certain startups kind of get their footing, get some exposure. I really help. I really like and enjoy helping people uh, start from nothing and improve. And I also love helping existing brands kind of update and modernize uh, for the present day. I've worked on several local campaigns for city council in kind of hostile regions um, in Washington, DC, where it's pretty one party dominated. And I helped a Republican candidate get over double digits a little bit with some branding practices. Um, our initial work led to him kind of standing out from, from other candidates in the past. And I'm really proud of that. So I've also worked in areas where it seems almost like you can't really win, but you can make a noise. Not that you should really celebrate any losses politically speaking, but I'm proud to at least have worked with people who weren't afraid to kind of challenge one party dominance and kind of put their views out there as well. So there are a lot of things I'm proud of in terms of my work. Um, and I'm still working with clients who I won't list, but who I'm very happy to work with because uh, we have longstanding relationships with. But yeah, there's a lot of things. And I defer people to my website, GabriellaHoffman.com, and they can find some stuff there. To, to sum up, uh, essentially, your life efforts and works, you know, as a, uh, an everyday hunter and angler, um, what is it that you're doing um, on behalf of, of me? You know, what is it that you contribute? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I offer a unique perspective and I try not to do things for my own self-interest like social media follows and accolades are great and those are added bonuses, but I try to not simply make it about myself. When I first started fishing when I was a kid, like people think I'm new to fishing like I am new to hunting. That's not true. I've been fishing for much of my life. I started out doing bait and spin fishing in Southern California, where I'm from originally. And I've always had an appreciation for the great outdoors. And I've always kind of understood that maybe down the road when I got a little older and was able to understand more complex subjects that perhaps there was a misunderstanding to certain things. And I kind of recognize that with hunting and my own respective hunting journey and wanting to be an example, I guess, now for people who live in urban areas, maybe you're not your traditional constituencies who go hunting too. For me personally, why I don't think I picked up hunting early on in life is because I had no proximity to it. I didn't know people who went hunting, although California really actually had a lot of opportunities to go hunting. I just never was aware of them. I think there was also a culture that 
didn't really welcome hunting in California, although there's great duck hunting opportunities in the Sacramento Delta region. There's a lot of um, predator hunting opportunities, I think, until they banned certain types of hunting. There's elk hunting in California, obviously, but I didn't know this because I just didn't know anyone and I was too young and I probably didn't understand or grasp hunting, but fishing was just super accessible to me. And when I became a young adult and someone who had the ability to channel kind of these different complex ideas and understandings and uh, kind of apply a personal application to my understanding of those activities and writing about hunting and, and the need for it and why people are so fascinated by it and reactivating their participation in it or picking it up for the first time. I've been there. I know what it's like to be completely clueless about it. I've been mentored by a lot of people in the hunting and outdoor community. I've befriended a lot of guys and women too. I've especially been motivated by women to partake in hunting, but I've been influenced by both men and women in my own hunting journey and even in my own firearms journey, which I took up before hunting. Um, but I think it's just, you know, having someone who has somewhat of a platform and there are many others like me. I'm not the only person with a nice and big Twitter footprint or a big social media footprint. There are others out there too, and hopefully they'll be able to use their platform for good and for educational purposes, not just showing their catches or their grip and grin, but also to educate people about laws, about trends that are happening, about industry players, people who are not getting their voice elevated. Uh, when I decided to launch my podcast two years, two and a half years ago, and, and even before that, when I decided to do outdoor writing, my first foray into outdoor writing was working and writing for outdoor or wide open spaces, excuse me, which was a kind of upstart publication. I did that for about eight months, nine months, and I got a feel for the issues. And I was like, I don't think I have to focus solely on writing in kind of an echo chamber. And maybe I can write about these issues down the road and also use my own personal experiences to inspire people to pick up an interest in the outdoors or perhaps get people who may not participate, who may be, I guess, antagonistic or in full opposition to hunting um, to kind of get a consideration for it, independent of my political views, independent of my background or whatever. Right. But I think um, you could look past political dispositions. You could look past kind of your upbringing, your background. For me, I'm also a first-generation American. I always forget to talk about that. <laughs> I mentioned that in a recent uh, interview that I did for another outdoor podcast. And, you know, being a first-generation American, uh, my, my parents came from the Soviet Union. So, Outdoor opportunities there were really dependent upon who you knew in government in the Soviet Politburo. They didn't issue licenses like we do here over the counter willingly. You often had to know someone. You had to be part of a kind of more privileged upbringing. You had to kind of go along the line of like what the party was talking about, the Communist Party was talking about. It was really hard to obtain permits. And my dad always talks about this with me. And this kind of influences my thinking on our conservation model in the United States. Um, the, the access that we have, whether on private or public lands, and, and I know there are certainly challenges to private land, but there are tools out there now to make access a lot easier. And I can certainly talk about one that I love using myself here on the East Coast. But my dad always talked about how coming to this country, he was always lied to in his old country in the Soviet Union before Lithuania became independent and free again about 30 years ago. He was always told that the United States has no regard for wildlife. They constantly pollute. They have no awareness for their surroundings, et cetera. But they were really projecting. Actually, the Soviet Union had one of the worst footprints for the environment. They had no regard for wildlife. Uh, things were really dissatisfactory. And 
it was really bad for conditions. Water was polluted, rivers were polluted and tainted. So they were kind of projecting their own sins on the United States, which has constantly improved their uh, environmental footprint, their conservation model. And when he came here and he saw wildlife, even in suburban areas and urban areas, he was he, his doubts were assuaged. Um, he knew that he was being lied to by propagandists in his home country or in his, the occupied version of his home country. And he saw himself through buying licenses, partaking in the system, learning about conservation, of course, you know, not catching more than his lot. And he instilled those values onto me and appreciation for nature and kind of uh, influenced me to take an interest in that, you know, and it was a great way for bonding. We still go fishing and, and I'm starting to get him plugged into hunting today, but my father was a great influence and he, he showed me comparisons about you know, the system we have in place here versus the system that he had in place and how he's grateful for even however imperfect our system is, that such a conservation model exists, that it's the gold standards. It's the standard that other countries and even continents try to emulate. And yeah, there's just so much to take away from it, you know, from my own personal experience and wanting people to feel confident. And also kind of now, kind of in this age we're in where everything is political, you can't escape politics. The one refuge even though politics does intervene and, and kind of seeps into the great outdoors and the concert or the conversation there, it's one of the last refuges where people can escape, where people can convene and congregate with others who may not agree with them politically, morally, whatever, and have a great time, enjoy time in the outdoors, whether they're fishing and hunting. So I think talking about this from a political edge, but also from kind of a participation edge, from a storytelling edge, a lot of things are lost. The news media, as you know, and as your listeners know, gets clogged up with different stories about division in one way or the other. They don't talk about positive developments. And I think there's an opportunity for the outdoor industry through people who participate in it directly, uh, whether they're partly new or somewhat emerged in the issue, to use their platform for good, to educate people about the joys of spending time in the outdoors, the inherent health benefits, the economic benefits, and how much it contributes to our economy. There's so many positive things to talk about and the economic footprint and so much more. And I try to use whatever vehicle I have, whether it's through writing columns or podcasting or creating videos and talking to lawmakers or whoever else I can talk to, newsmakers, influencers, etc., to try to get them to think and kind of a focused mind as well as to what the greater mission is, how they can use their platforms for good, not just to simply curate a beautifully curated social media feed, but also to use their message for good to motivate people to go fishing, hunting, partake in shooting sports, et cetera. So that may be very long-winded what I explained, but that's kind of, those are several themes and goals that I can kind of take away from my own upbringing, my own interest to prop up stuff to get new hunters to showcase that you can live in an urban area with limited opportunities and still pursue these different opportunities. And I try my best pre-COVID especially to introduce new people to fishing. I did a really good job of introducing like three or four friends to fishing in 2019 and they loved it. They were like, oh, I was apathetic before, but maybe I want to try this again. So I even try to like use opportunities. I have to go fishing to bring newbies. I haven't been able to do that for hunting because it's a little more challenging And myself. I'm still learning the ropes about things, but I try to introduce people to the outdoors who live in urban areas who may not have otherwise been exposed to that. And sharing is caring, I guess, in this case. And we, if we're trying to set a good example, we have to follow through with doing that. So in my own reporting work, I try to be principled. In my podcasting, I try to be that way. And 
offline. I try to to live out these virtues and live out this lifestyle as best as I can and introduce people to it. So that's kind of my operating thinking, my, I guess, interest in, in this. And I try to yeah. be welcoming and, you know, not admonish anyone for wanting to take an interest in this. Sure. Two things that, um, that stood out um, from that for me was I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, uh, especially when it comes to you know, segmenting and talking to people in the outdoors is uh, by and large marketing had focused a lot on demographics and where demographics might, you know, label you as uh, an urban, um, you know, demographic. Uh, that's not really the case. You know, there's, there's a strong case for saying, well, there are, <laughs> you know, rural people living in urban landscapes, and we can't just talk to them um, based off of, you know, specifically how they live, but maybe delving a little bit further into the psychographic of who they are as, as opposed to their demographic. Yeah, I think that divide between rural and urban and even suburban, um, I think could be broken through avenues like the great outdoors. And, it's really sad that people can't like kind of get out of their echo chambers to do so. Um, and I think now a lot of these feelings and attitudes now in favor of hunting and even fishing are transplanting themselves into suburban regions, into outdoor regions. And for me, like I said, I grew up in a suburban area in between Los Angeles and San Diego. I was always close to cities, but I wasn't so close to cities, but I also had exposure to rural areas and I think now people realize you don't have to necessarily be typecasted as someone who lives in this region, and therefore you're only going to do this stuff. There are people in rural areas who don't go fishing and hunting. I've met plenty of them, and I've met plenty of people working in and around the nation's capital. I'm about 20 minutes or so from D.C. proper, and I've met plenty of people who go hunting. A lot of them are transplants to the region. Of course, they may come from southern states, some from northeastern states, out west, et cetera. And I've met a lot of locals who like to go fishing and hunting too. So I don't think your geography really should typecast you and kind of put you in a box as to what your potential and what your limitations are or lack of limitations are to go fishing and hunting. And I think now we start to see, especially with the onslaught of covid Probably one of the silver linings to come from this really unfortunate circumstance, this really horrific pandemic, is that these kind of boundaries and barriers are being broken where you see a lot of urbanites now fishing uh, more openly and willingly. You see a lot of people in suburbia doing that too, and even people from the rural areas as well. But you see that those type of stereotypes and limitations are being shattered because now people recognize that, oh, there's a body of water near me. I can go fishing and I don't have to feel judged about doing it. Or I just want to do catch and release and I don't have to feel stigmatized or, you know, they could be a, a business professional and they do it, or they're like a tech person. I, I think a great example would be um, the recreational boating and fishing foundation did a great series video series last year or the year before where they had like a DJ from New York city who used to go fishing off the cliffs of like the long Island sound. And he would, they would show him fishing right it with New York City in the backdrop. So that was really cool to see. He's been a lifelong anger, angler, excuse me. And uh, he was showcasing his love of fishing. Um, different organizations like that who do great recruitment and retention and reactivation efforts, they highlight that. So I think it just wasn't discussed at length at much. And I think people would stereotype, you know, who a hunter or who an angler was. And that's why I think we talked pre-recording that you see 
and uh, non-endemic publications like a Pew Trust or Washington Post and even Wall Street Journal, which has actually been quite fair and pretty receptive to the field to fork uh, kind of component to hunting. But you see kind of these um, publications, which usually never talk favorably about hunting, maybe from a kind of limited, more granular perspective, they will talk about hunting or like they prefer only like shotgun hunting. They may not like rifle hunting, but you now see publications which have typically been hostile to hunters or the archetype hunters now saying like, oh, if we don't replenish the coffers through excise taxes paid by guns and ammunition by hunters and anglers, we're going to be in real trouble with conservation. So I think people are realizing maybe we shouldn't have propped up these stereotypes. Maybe we had to write about people and portray people who go fishing and hunting rather than this one-dimensional view, like kind of this multi-dimensional view that this type of hobby is embraced by a lot of people. And partly we may be to blame for stereotyping people or maybe having people shy away from this. So I think I I don't think you can totally blame media at large, but you could probably blame cultural institutions for stereotyping things. But I think, especially in the last few years, more people are readily embracing this, or maybe they were displaced or they didn't have opportunities to do it because of their busy schedules. And they're saying that my geography shouldn't limitly limit me, excuse me, from partaking in these activities. So I've always been keen on doing it myself. And I try to showcase that, that you can live in an area and do this. And it's really great that fellow media members are now starting to do this and probably recognizing that they didn't have to portray hunting and fishing in a one-dimensional way. They could have done it in a much better way, but yeah, that's a really important um, topic in understanding just how nuanced um, the hunting and angling community, especially the angling community. Um, But I feel like uh, the hunting community gets a lot more uh, typecast and and generalized by outsiders and maybe even um, from the inside as well. Um, There's obviously, you know, there's what we call the hyphenated hunters, right? Talking about that where it's like, oh, yes, I'm a, um, you know, example of a hyphenated hunter would be I only archery. I'm an archery hunter. Yeah. which is like, that's great for us on the inside. And, and there is a lot of nuance to the different practices and opinions and general stewardship uh, for, for nature. And, and then, uh, you know, how we all feel, because there's, it's, it's not just all um, Republicans that hunt, Democrats hunt too, <laughs> liberals hunt, and so do conservatives. And so does everybody in between. And uh, it's really hunting is probably the only like nonpartisan, one of the only nonpartisan things we have. Uh, but unfortunately, um, you're going to have to play uh, partisan in DC. Is that correct? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I mean, we're all guilty of those moments. I think maybe I have in the past, but I've tried to be kind of civil about it um, and, and respectful. But it's it's really sad that now everything has to be construed like this. And I'm as conservative as I, they come politically and I make no qualms about it. Um, but I have different like strategy and, and tactics about how I go about myself and in my politics today, but you'll, you'll, you'll find that I'm, I'm pretty that much like that. But I think um, I'm of the belief that you have to have everyone at the table for hunting to sustain itself, for fishing to sustain itself, gun rights to sustain itself. Um, and it's really great to see more Democrats or people who vote Democrat uh, purchasing guns because they recognize that they have to protect themselves too, you know, in the event of any attack on their home or their personal sovereignty. Um, and that's why we saw a lot of 
kind of untraditional demographics purchasing firearms in mass in the last year. Um, so hunting is afforded to everyone in this country, right or left, same with firearms ownership, right or left. And those interests are better served when everyone is at the table, not when there are fewer people, I think. Yeah. Um, some of the goals for, you know, some of the reasons that I, I, I wanted to bring you on to the show is one, I wanted uh, my listener base to be exposed to the District of Conservation because, um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in length, I think it's a great resource to stay informed. Um, even though we might, you know, differ um, a little bit politically uh, as far as, as where we stand on a, um, a lot of things, I, I still look at your podcast as a really great informational resource for me to start my own research journey. And, and I think you do a, a really good job of staying informative and, um, but also, you know, your, your political leanings uh, influence how you feel about things and you do a great job of explaining how you feel about them. And I've, I've come to really appreciate how you, how you, how you explain them and talk to me about them, which is something that I want, uh, you know, my listener base to be able to benefit from, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a net win. Um, one of the, you know, one of the other things that I want to do, I recognize that a lot of, um, hunters and, and anglers and particularly my audience, uh, does, uh, lean politically different, um, than I do and maybe, um, are more aligned with how you feel. And I want them to have a responsible, um, you know, outlook and, and resource that they can look to and kind of emulate and how you're talking, um, about it. Because I think that if everybody, both sides talked the way that you talked uh, or that you talk about, um, you know, these politically charged things that are very important um, and near and dear to all of our hearts, um, then we would get a lot further. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting how you can, or how I've tried to toe those two lines very carefully. I think you can be objective and you can hold opinions, which I try to do. And I try to understand the other side. You know, I read their statements. I may not agree or let's say if I'm talking about, you know, animal rights activists, I include their words to kind of show a differentiation. Um, even with political opponents, when they talk about the environment, energy, you know, I try to give them deference. I try to give them consideration and uh, try to understand their views, even if I can come to the conclusion that I don't agree with it. And I think you can toe that line very carefully because if I'm just preaching to the choir and giving people like, yeah, yeah, like I totally support this. Like, I don't have any doubts. I don't have any questions. I'm not doing my job effectively as a reporter, as a commentator and however people view me. I think I would love people to come on and hear the perspective. And I think true conservation shouldn't necessarily be construed as politically conservative. A lot of politically conservative people like me subscribe to that thinking. We want stewardship. We want multiple use management of public lands. We believe as long as you're ethical, you should do what you want to do. Um, if you partake in the energy industry, you're not really evil. Um, you don't have to be viewed in that perspective. And I think, yeah, true conservation shouldn't have to be construed like that. Cause I know yeah. who are not conservative. There are libertarians, there are independents, Democrats, they work off the land, they're ranchers, they do all these different things, um, what true conservation is heralded as. So I, I know that. And even though I kind of may put like a conservative lens to it, I think that's been a principle, multiple use management that both Republicans and Democrats have adhered to, um, especially in the past. And it worries me to see some in Democrat circles kind of shift away from that, from a model that has worked. And I would hope that others in the party uh, can kind of 
convey to their compatriots to be like, maybe you want to back off of these positions because it could hurt our voter base or it could hurt our viability as a party in the future. And like I talked to you before, I think a voice like Joe Manchin could probably help restore kind of balance on his party's end. And I think it's important to recognize that like, you know, a lot of people can subscribe to, I have no doubt. Um, and I think there was a Democrat. I think he's now, he was defeated last, uh, November, Colin Peterson from Minnesota, who was, I guess, a conservative Democrat, um, but he was in Minnesota for a long time in the House of Representatives. And he would always vote for um, Endangered Species Act reforms. And there were a handful of other Democrats who would too. So like stuff that is perceived as conservative or Republican was actually not really the case. You would see a lot of Democrats in the past embrace like ESA reforms. You'd see uh, people embrace like multiple use management on the left. And it doesn't have to be a Republican issue. I, I don't want it to be because I want people to understand the importance how of farmers, how they play in conservation, how ranchers play in conservation, why you need them, why you shouldn't vilify them, how different stakeholders play into it. Um, hikers, bikers, birders, uh, everyone, how, how everyone plays into the equation. And I think if you if you vilify one, it's not going to stop there. It's going to go to other interests. It'll go to hunting outfitters in the next uh, political battle, so to speak. But I think you can I think you can successfully navigate, you know, having personal opinions, but also just reporting the news from different sources. And I try to do that because so many people, I think, on my side just rush to be kind of polemic. They want to get clicks, lights, likes, hits, traffic, et cetera. And if that's how you're operating and you're not trying to change opinions or get people from different constituencies, just to at least consider you, they don't have to agree with you. I don't think you're being effective. I would love to hear more so from people on the other side who, let's say, may read my column or may read or listen to something that I partake in and be like, I came away from that learning something new. I may not agree with you politically, but I came away from that new and I, I'm appreciative of this and that. And I would love to be able to offer or to interview more uh, left-leaning folks. And hopefully I'll get the chance to do that in the future. But I've had people who disagree with me politically on the show, but we don't talk politics. Um, we talk about fishing, we talk about hunting, and I think we have to do a better job of that. And sometimes on the left, I see some of them kind of falling into this where they don't want to bring on conservatives because they find their views, or they find our views repugnant, which I think is a mistake. And I think if more of us can come to the table, I think it's better, um, not only for our issues, but for the greater discourse at large in the United States. But I think you have to be kind of balanced. You can't really dehumanize your opponents. And I've learned that over the years where that's not conducive, I think, to dialogue and changing hearts and minds. You can have, like I said, well-defined views, but your tactics and your strategy can really come out and kind of hurt you, I think. So I hope people across the political spectrum kind of see that. And even here in in our space in the outdoor industry too. Um, so we all have to be better with our rhetoric. We all have to kind of be willing to talk to people we disagree with and come together and, and demonstrate that a conservative person can talk about true conservation efforts which are American, it supersedes partisan lines, and how the virtues of conservation as they're traditionally viewed should be replicated, should be adhered to, and how we have to have nuance at the center of everything and why you have to talk about different issues because it's not just going to affect one political party. It's going to affect people of all political parties. Um, like I had said, um, a lot of people hunt, a lot of people go fishing, a lot of people own guns, uh, regardless of their politics. And we have to just kind of go back to the basics uh, with respect to that. So yeah, I, I thank you for, for uh, 
communicating that it means a lot. And I, I really hold that um, compliment in, in high regard for, for saying that. And that's my goal. It's, you know, you can know my biases, you can know kind of where I stand, but you can also see that I can put myself above politics and talk about issues that affect everyone because a lot of people go and do this and and it shouldn't be limited to one political preference. That would be un-American. Um, so that's kind right. of, kind the, of my view of it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I kind of, I, I think of it ex- exactly like this, the place where you, where you practice and um, test your, your opinions and your thoughts um, and you exercise them is extremely important. And so if, if you have a, a place where you're such as like, you're living in an echo chamber of your own views and opinions, it's the same. It, that would be like lifting weights in space. But if you fill your space and where you're practicing, um, you know, in, in essentially <clears throat> training your thoughts and opinions and really stressing them out um, would be, important to have a a place of conflict where someone can challenge you and add some gravity um, to the, uh, to the thought and mental gymnastics that you're doing. Uh, And it would be the same as lifting weights either in space or lifting weights, you know, in a a place of gravity, like, like earth. And it doesn't, your argument doesn't get any stronger when you just practice it. Um, It it doesn't get any beneficially um, stronger if you just practice it in an echo chamber. Right. Yeah. And we're seeing that take fold now, I think, over um, the discussion of certain social media platforms, the banning or not banning of such. And Twitter does have some problems. And I think Facebook does, too. I've never been suppressed. I've had warnings recently, but I haven't posted anything. But I think their bugs are just hyperactive because of just the situation going on. But I've never had restrictions placed on me. Um I think sometimes these technology companies rely too much on automation, which can hurt them. And I've seen this with outdoor content. Let's say people are posting their wild game harvests and Mm. something as innocuous as like a turkey breast or uh, a cut of meat could be flagged or people wage like online campaigns to flag content because they target hunters, wild game chefs. I think that's a problem. And I've talked to a few people in Facebook before who've said like, you guys should have like a dedicated team to outdoor content because a lot of content is being flagged for spurious reasons, for kind of uh, reasons that that don't make sense, and that and and for motivations that are political in nature, um, not so much partisan politics, but kind of this animal rights versus uh, hunting politics. And um, there are certainly imperfections with the existing infrastructure, no doubt about it. But when people, I've seen people on my side, kind of just want to retreat to platforms where it's mostly people doing the same and not everyone holds that view. Like people want alternatives um, because they believe in free speech, but they still believe in actively participating in Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I think it'd be a grave mistake to abandon those platforms, um, whether it's for politics or for hunting or fishing content. But yeah, I've learned that echo chambers are not healthy. Um, I don't want people agreeing with me being yes men or yes women. I want people who think differently than me to follow and engage with me as long as they're respectful. And if you don't like someone or like something, you can always block. You can always mute. Um, I think that's better than you know trying to get someone kicked off a platform unless they're really abusing their privileges. Um, and sometimes I think with uh, certain banning, some people have been in very... Uh, how would you say in, in very deep violation of terms of services, if you're posting death threats, if you're abusing terms of service and, and not following guidelines, um, that's not 
supposedly, that's not necessarily suppression. That's more so you've abused your privileges, you were given warnings, and you could be kicked off a platform because they are private companies. But a lot of people are now rushing to say, well, we need a nationalization of this, which I think is problematic. And then a complete overhaul of, let's say, like Section 230, which I think is problematic to you have it both right and left, and they have justifications for it for different reasons, which both I disagree with. Um, but yeah, echo chambers, I think, are problematic. And I hope um, some of the companies out there, the existing ones, may not rush to ban differing views if they are banning differing views. I know in some cases they do. Uh, but there are some people who do abuse the terms of service. And if you're in perpetual abuse of that, you kind of lose your privilege. Um, but there, I think, has to be balance between um, dangerous speech that is not protected by the First Amendment. Death threats are not <laughs> protected under the First Amendment, for sure. Um, you have to make a differentiation between that and differently held views and even with respect to hunting and fishing views. Um, so, yeah, I think no one wants to live in an echo chamber and people who do, they're very insular and very, I think, counterproductive in their views. But that's going to be something we're going to have to debate and explore and discuss, you know, going forward. I think we're going to see a lot of that conversation today uh, dominate the the airwaves, social media. People are going to be talking about suppression or alternatives. And I would hope it would motivate people at these different companies to maybe be like, maybe we shouldn't take so much of drastic steps. We could put some warnings, but if we particularly target one set of views and not the other fairly, maybe we should kind of scale back those efforts. So there's a lot of nuance kind of going back to what I talk about um, in my podcast. I think hopefully there'll be some changes that'll prompt people to come to the table, not make impulsive decisions to suppress one view over another or have it extend to outdoor content or firearms content because we do see some people kind of stripped of their ability to do so, even if they don't violate terms of service because maybe someone flagged their content. So I think it'll hopefully prompt people and I know it's very difficult to remain optimistic in this day and age, but I, I really would hope that it prompts people to take off their blinders, sit aside or set aside, you know, differences and sit down. I know in the past there have been different discussions, politically speaking, with company heads and, and big power players in conservative politics, for instance. I hope it would uh, come about again. Um, and especially with the outdoor industry, I hope these social media companies will um, not be so keen on, let's say, uh, flagging certain content that is not in violation of terms of service and uh, people could just, you know, get together better. Um, see, I know it's, it's a lot to demand out there, but I think dialogue can be possible even in this very politically divisive age. And um, hopefully it doesn't extend to our sector as much, but we do see people kind of flag innocuous content that's problematic. And I think um, leaning on automation is very dangerous. I think you still have to have an interpersonal touch when we're dealing with these technological means or technological tools. Um, technology is great, but if you defer to it so much, you lose the human touch. And I think that's why there is so much caustic behavior and division yeah, uh, because we rely on going on autopilot, not so much wanting to interface uh, in person or talking to people. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. 
Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Yeah. And before we, before we transition thoughts here, the, the one takeaway that I, I wanted to um, bring about is, is that as, as hunters and anglers, uh, despite which, which party uh, maybe we more align with or that we vote for um, consistently, we have a lot more in common with each other and the end state that we all want um, than maybe with people that we politically align with on other issues. And so we have to wait and uh, we have to wait how much we care about these particular issues. And if, and uh, you've mentioned it and it's, it's shown itself a lot that hunters and anglers are not single party voters. And so we have to really evaluate where, where that falls in line with, with how we drive our decision-making. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, you're always going to sometimes defer to the party that you subscribe to and vote for. But I think on these issues, sometimes you can find more agreement with people on the political opposite side than not. Unfortunately, it's kind of hard now because some people on the left and some people on the right are very hardened in their views and they don't want to talk to anyone. I've seen that on social media and it's really sad. Um, but yeah, I think we can try to find commonality. It's That's why we encourage people to do these activities. And I think when people partake in this, they can shed any misconceptions they have about other people, just have a great time, eat some snacks, watch sunrise, uh, watch a sunset, see some wildlife in their surroundings. And I would hope more people would seek out activities to just deplug, get away from caustic or divisive behavior. And that's why such activities that we all enjoy exist. And I would encourage people to to do that and kind of encourage those activities if you want to kind of lower the temperature. It's January 13th and we're about a week and a half away or a week away from um, a uh, change of scenery in DC. Um, you are, you're, you're working on something right now to kind of evaluate um, President Trump's conservation legacy. Um, I'm not sure when you said that would be available um, for everybody, but we wanted to go ahead and, and tease it out a little bit. And so if, if you wouldn't mind just spending a couple minutes talking about, you know, what's come out of these last four years and maybe what we need to be looking for in the next four years. Sure. Yeah, I'll try to condense it as best as possible. And in light of recent events, I really don't want to dwell on it because it's just been hanging over my head so much. Um, just what transpired in the Capitol, it's, it's very harrowing and very un-American what had happened. And I think the good that came out from the last four years, and I was very fair to the Trump administration. I liked a lot of what they were doing on the conservation and energy front but I think that's going to get lost and derided going forward just because of the last few months um, since November. But I think you could still talk about some of the accomplishments um, independent of how the end happened, how all these events transpired. And there was a lot of good that came out and it's not really on the shoulders of the president. Um, it took a lot of people, people in his department, um, members of both parties for legislation, especially for different things to come about. But I think hunters and anglers felt they did have a greater voice. I did see that with uh, the hunting and shooting sports coalition they built. A lot of recreational anglers felt that they had a voice after 
the past administration kind of took them out of the equation on these different marine fisheries councils and with just the shortened red snapper season. So this administration did a lot to bolster recreational fishing, especially through uh, signing into law the Modern Fish Act, which uh, made a differentiation between how commercial and recreational fishing is viewed and how it should be monitored. And that's really important. It supersedes politics. This had widespread bipartisan support in Congress. So that was something good. Um, There were about 4 million new Fish and Wildlife Service and National Hatch Fishery public land acres that were opened, which is wonderful. Um, We saw people from both parties celebrate that. I also forgot to include this in uh, our pre-discussion, but also I think a lot of people really did like to see the Bureau of Land Management move out west to be kind of better accountable to their constituents since 99% of public lands lie out west, west of the Mississippi. And that probably will change in the new administration. And we'll talk more about what they plan to do. Um, A lot of good bills were signed into law that had pretty across the board bipartisan support. There was the Descend Act, uh, the Great American Outdoors Act, which I know you've talked about at length with uh, our mutual friends, David Wilms, Nephi Cole. Um, That was wonderful. And I think one of the positive highlights to the administration um, when you really didn't see so much of conservation legislation openly tackled, I think, in the Bush years and some other Republicans. There was also the Target Practice and Marksmanship Training Support Act, which bolstered public shooting opportunities on public lands, the Pittman-Robertson Modernization Act, and so much more. Um, I think, and I know some people will disagree, but I I was very happy to see WOTUS, the Waters of the United States rule, which I know you've talked about at length and heard Nephi's um, spiel about this. Yeah, I only spent like three hours in a duck marsh hearing about the nuance and and how instrumental he was in it. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, and and um, no, he he was on it from a state level, but he he talked more at length about it and kind of gave the dimensions to it. And I think a lot of people liked seeing those rules redefined or changed, and a lot of it rolled back because it was kind of blanket statement designating all bodies of water something that isn't even navigable as a body of water, and that had a lot of deleterious consequences for landowners. So. That was something that was positive. I anticipate that being restored under Biden's administration. There was something interesting that not many people really talked about um, from the uh, One Trillion Trees Initiative, which is a World Economic Forum uh, to plant more trees, to reduce carbon. So that was interesting. Um, Another thing that was pretty controversial, but did have some bipartisan support were the NEPA reforms um, to kind of make the process for infrastructure uh, with consideration to environmental concerns, a little more streamlined, not held in courts, not held in different um, obstacles. So it did bring about some reforms there. And interestingly enough, um, we saw the rejection of the pebble mine permit from Trump's Army Corps of Engineers with a lot of bipartisan support, a lot of social media pressure, I think, um, that was relegated through social media channels, uh, communications with lawmakers. So we saw a lot of things happen. And certainly, you know, in the pre-stage of, let's say, formulations of budget discussions and all that, um, maybe in the beginning they were opposed to it. But I think due to public pressure and public influence, um, they were able to be swayed in the right direction for many issues. Um, And something interesting, too, the administration actually established its first cold case task force for missing and murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives, which really didn't get much coverage. It was super interesting. And um, yeah, I think there was a lot of good to be had. But I think the 
events of the recent weeks and recent months will probably erase it and kind of deride it. Um, I don't know how people should think of it, but I think you could still take away from the good and then contrast it with what's ahead. But I think a lot of the accomplishments are going to get bogged down just because of very bad judgment on the president's part with some of his statements and and some of his actions post-November. But I still think there was many good things to take away from it. And like I said, a lot of it was bipartisan. Um, Some of it maybe was not bipartisan, but a lot of it was uh, celebrated with different constituencies across the United States, farmers, ranchers, hunters, shooting sports enthusiasts, people who felt they were sidelined under past administrations, and they were given a greater voice. And it'll be really interesting to see that dynamic shift. And if we want to move over to, I guess, what we can expect in the incoming Biden administration, just by all indications I've seen, it's going to be very different. Um, We saw this kind of play out in the House Natural Resources Committee under Chairman Raul Grijalva, a Democrat from Arizona. Uh, We're going to see a lot of what he has prioritized kind of take hold at Biden's Interior Department, certainly Biden's EPA, uh, Agriculture Department, and other avenues. Um, He had a focus of prioritizing climate issues, and certainly there's a need to talk about climate issues, but I think that should be more so discussed in like the Energy Department or agencies or departments that fully solely focus on that. So we're going to see, I think, climate seep into everything and kind of an excess. Um, And I think that's going to concern a lot of people, not because they don't care about the climate, not because they don't care about the environment, but I think the climate issue can be weaponized at times. And I think it can be to the detriment of people who honest work in the energy sector, who don't want to taint the environment, who don't want to taint water. Um, A lot of people in oil and gas have had to modernize and they want to willingly modernize and improve technology so that they have the limited footprint, they have a limited um, environmental impact. And so they could still obviously engage in commerce, but also contribute to conservation. And I've seen this in Virginia firsthand with reclaimed coal fields. I wrote about this in the Virginia Sportsman where uh, the Surface Mine Act from the 1970s related to um, salvaging uh, used coal fields and and repurposing that for uh, habitat for elk or deer or whatnot. And I saw that continuity between well drilling, which was still very active, but also very healthy elk habitat and and why we're seeing such a huge surge of elk. Um, They were able to determine, wildlife biologists were able to determine that these reclaimed coal fields make excellent habitat uh, for this species that is on the rebound. Um, And so I think Uh, with that climate push, it's going to be that push to preservation, which doesn't necessarily benefit conservation. There's always that distinction you have to make, I think, between preservation and conservation. And I think in any extreme would be bad. Um, I don't really see anyone in, and this is a very controversial topic at hand in the greater hunting sphere, but very few people hold the view that every public acre has to be sold to private land interests. I don't know anyone who supports that. I think they're far and few between. Certainly there are a few voices that portray that view, Um, but it's a dying opinion. I think people want to balance. And then when you seep into, steep into, excuse me, this preservationist push with, with the climate push um, that we do see this administration, incoming administration want to, pursue, I think that's going to alienate people like a push to privatize or a push to rid of every single public land would. And I caution anyone, especially those on the left, with um, making kind of this preservationist attitude the norm because it's going to shut out people from the equation. I think you're going to see a diminishment of conservation dollars if hunters and anglers are taken out of the equation. 
There's also this push for a 30 by 30. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a UN proposal to designate public waters and public lands, 30% of it off to future use. And an unintended consequence or perhaps an intended consequence is to get hunters and anglers and recreationists away from accessing that um, through a preservationist lens. So a lot of people, the Bipartisan Congressional Sportsman Foundation has sounded the alarm for that. They helped defeat the California bill, which was really close to passing. Uh, but bipartisan organizations like that were sounding the alarm for proposals like that because it would take hunters and anglers out of the equation and do kind of the inverse of what, let's say, like I'd mentioned, those who want to so-called privatize um, all public lands would do. It's another extreme. And I worry proposals like that are going to take hold. It's going to take people out of the equation. Um, I'm a little concerned about Biden's interior secretary because I believe she will push that. She believes in the Green New Deal. Uh, she doesn't support any kind of all of the above energy approach. Um, I haven't really seen her do a nod or really embrace hunters that much. Um, some hunting organizations have talked a little bit about her, but you haven't really seen her champion hunter interests. So that'll be really interesting if she kind of continues what she's subscribed to. Does she kind of uh, moderate her tone? Does she extend an olive branch to hunters? That remains to be seen, I think. I mean, I hope she will. Um, I'm trying to be positive and, and give her the benefit of the doubt. But given what I've seen from her, I think she kind of tilts too far to the preservationist angle and um, will only kind of serve certain interests over kind of the greater conservation interests. So that that concerns me a bit with her. Um, but, you know, as constituents and, and Americans and voters, I think if you don't like something, you can peaceably and peacefully kind of urge your concerns. If there's public comments, um, a lot of people would go to the Department of Interior to convey their perspective on different issues under this administration, under past administrations. And if the opposition to something is so overwhelming, the agency can take that public input and, uh, you know, implement it into their secretarial orders or their conduct. So if, let's say, uh, a future Interior Secretary Halland is, you know, pushing this and public comment is put out there, um, people can convey their perspective. And if the overwhelming number of comments are against their proposals, maybe they'll disregard it. But sometimes, you know, public comment gets disregarded at times. It happened a little bit under this administration. It could definitely happen under this incoming one. I would worry if they don't put more opinions or uh, policy proposals for agency-related actions out there for public opinion that that will have to closely watch. I'm going to watch to see if that does happen. And if they take away that input power, I'd be very concerned. Um, hopefully they won't take away that input power. Hopefully they're going to be transparent. A lot of what this administration did was offer more transparency. The EPA did about some of their measures and their policy agendas. Although a lot of people say, well, they were very destructive. Um, there was a lot of transparency. That's something that I think we all should command of our government agencies, um, individuals, et cetera. So I hope transparency could be at the forefront. Um, they should be open about what they plan to do and they should allow people to offer feedback Oh, gosh. And some other proposals. I think um, I saw something in one of the debates that Biden supports like land trusts for farming. And that really concerned me. That was very much against um, 
kind of what farming is for. And that kind of puts farmers out of the equation. Um, it's going to dictate to farmers, you know, that the government can kind of control your uh, behavior. So that worries me a little bit. I think stakeholder relations could be strained again. Um, and that worries me a lot. And I hope that's not the case. So we just have to remain vigilant, um, regardless of your politics. And if you see something you don't like, you have to voice your concern. You can write to your congressman, your state lawmaker, and you can make it known on social media why you support or oppose it. You can work with different hunting organizations to band together to voice your support or opposition for something. And I think public opinion, if it's overwhelmingly, you know, in favor or against something, um, lawmakers can look to it and oppose it. I think that really helps even when you have a um, not so friendly administration, um, what a lot of hunters and anglers kind of anticipate going forward. Um, I think you can still be a little hopeful that public discourse and, and airing your grievances in a civil manner could still uh, draw back and, and kind of dissuade people from embracing bad policy. So we'll right. see. We'll and see. More, and more important than that too is, is, you know, reaching out to other hunters and anglers. Coalition building. Yeah, exactly. Finding finding our common voice to um, push what we need, push what we want, and advocate for that um, in a nonpartisan um, or a bipartisan, I guess, yeah. uh, manner. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also encourage people not only to care about what happens federally, but in your state legislatures. Mm -hmm. Something I witnessed in the last few years was when uh, state legislatures shifted to kind of too far to the left, you saw a lot of anti-hunting legislation, legislation that would hit not only Republicans, but also Democrats who hunt, people who go trapping, people who partake in certain forms of hunting, dog running, whatever. And um, if we see that happen now, we see anti-hunting bills pushed out by either party, um, even those on the left, I would hope people pay attention, band together, write their congressman, write their lawmaker. Um, and really, you know, write letters to the editors, write op-eds, that really does influence people, uh, even in this kind of uh, kind of a un uncharted territory where entering right. politics. I think traditional means, you know, through digital communication efforts or through uh, writing in a newspaper or something, they still carry a lot of weight and people read that and people are very scared about how they're perceived by their constituents. So if yeah. people are writing letters, Op opposing, you know, an, a very bad anti-hunting bill, they're going to listen and they're going to be like, oh gosh, I don't want to lose election. I don't want to be like rooted out from committee. I don't want to like have angry, you know, calls or, or be met with opposition. So maybe I'll, I'll scale back on my support of this. Um, so perception is key. And these people, because politicians, they're very self-absorbed. They're going to be caring about what people think of them. And if opposition to a bill mounts and a lot of people right and left oppose it, I think they can certainly be influenced. I would hope that they would still, you know, do that. But I've seen in many cases where even if there's overwhelming opposition, sometimes lawmakers will still go through it. in city council in Virginia. There was a lot of opposition to banning um, concealed carry in federal buildings. And they still, the city council still voted for it um, with disregard to public opinion. Um, so sometimes they may not, but a lot of times they will listen to the voice of the public and different coalitions coming together, especially if it's super overwhelming. So sometimes our strategy can work very effectively. And I think most of the time it will, but sometimes, unfortunately, lawmakers don't listen because they're too comfortable. They think that they know the will of the people, but it's important to place pressure in a very pragmatic and, and tactful way 
Um, and I think you can still change hearts and minds. But I think, yeah, legislator, legislatures, you do need to pay attention to what happens in your backyard, what happens in your localities too, because sometimes those yeah. effects are felt more immediately. Oftentimes when a bill is passed in your legislature, it's going to go into effect uh, June 30th or July 1st. In Virginia, you can feel the immediate impact, for instance, of a bill. Federally, um, although bad bills are passed often and they suck, most of the time when it, com- when it comes to hunting or, or guns or whatnot, um, they take a little more time to go into effect. Sometimes it takes a calendar year, sometimes a year and a half, but you're going to feel more of the immediate impact in your backyard. So it's important to watch. It's important to build coalitions, to set aside your differences. If this really does concern you, really does affect your livelihood to go hunting and forge those connections. And I think we're going to see it in Virginia. We have a Sunday hunting bill uh, being introduced to eliminate the last vestiges of blue laws that prohibit public hunting opportunities on Sundays. So we're seeing a lot of people across political lines coming together and saying like, this is really archaic. This needs to go. And because Virginia is controlled by Democrats all across the board, they know that hunting is embedded in our state culture in our state heritage, and they would be impractical to, uh, uh, not go through with it. So it's it's really interesting um, just seeing how that kind of campaign to allow this is being mounted and how it's actually taking both sides to do it, um, which I'm really encouraged by. So, so Gabriella, so, you know, talking, coming together, right, on these common issues um, in a bipartisan manner to voice what's best for hunters and anglers. Uh, got that. How do we identify um, these issues? How do we stay informed? Honestly, um, I find it very difficult to wade through <laughs> what might be construed as, you know, kind of an irresponsible news core um, when it comes to really just stating fact and like, okay, here's the facts. Here's a, a little bit of bias on how we feel about it. Cause obviously um, that is, it's very difficult <laughs> um, to not find that. How do we, how do we all identify these issues? And then have, uh, you know, come together then, because that's my thing is, is there's so many issues out there and it's, it's a hard, it's hard to start somewhere. Yeah. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of angry opinions out there, but it starts with, you know, following what is happening locally. I recommend you bookmark uh, different publications from your state capital or from your region. The dailies, I think, sometimes come across better. I've actually found that I I learn about certain breaking news from local news stations still, um, from some of the daily regional papers who uh, are wedded in kind of what's happening in states and, you know, following different hunting organizations, Safari Club, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited. They keep tabs on a lot of stuff. Um, so that's a really good resource as well. I think also following different perspectives. I try to follow people who uh, talk about conservation or energy and environment, even if I don't agree with them as well. So following people who may work in like, there's a great, what is it? EE, EE News. They focus on energy environment and they were just acquired by Politico. Um, but they report mostly straight news about different happenings relating to conservation, energy, environmental issues. Um, so seeking out kind of the the outlets that do talk about it um, and recommend so, them do have biases too, of course. But um, just finding like also setting up a Google alert if you're specific yeah. about like, I don't know, following grizzly bear issues or about trapping or about um, your state legislature, you can enable a Google alert also for finding out what bills are happening. Um, in your state legislature, you can type in your state plus state legislature and go to the bills that are being introduced and find 
the legislation there. That's the best, obviously, way to do it. Kind of unfiltered lens. It reads the text in plain English, and you know what the position is, if it's good or bad. Um, so going directly to the source is important too, rather than third-party outlets or or disseminators of news go directly to the source. That's super important. Um, anytime I write about something, I want to defer to the original source because it would be counterproductive just to rely on a second-hand account or a third-hand account. Um, and same with Congress. The, everything is transparently out there. You can go to, um, I forget the exact outlet, but uh, yeah, there's a lot. I think you go go directly yeah. to the source too, but different so who outlets. Are your top, who are your top five follows, would you say? Well, gosh, it's really hard to contextualize um, sure. that. I don't know if I want to answer that confidently, <laughs> but but I, I don't know. It's just just find outlets that are interesting and compelling um, I don't want to list off, you know, one or the other because I like a lot of people. I, I, it would be hard for me to pinpoint five, so I, I don't, I don't think that's a, <laughs> good of me to, to answer. But I would say um, seek out differing opinions. Seek out obviously people on your side, other side. Um, follow the different conservation organizations and see what they're all about. Yeah, I have really appreciated, especially what your platform in the District of Conservation is, because that's kind of a, a good start point for me, uh, as well as the Your Mountain podcast. Mm-hmm. as well. Is there any other podcasts um, that are doing what you what you guys are doing? That's a great question. I'm trying to think. I know there are a few out there. I um, I would say like Lone Star Outdoor Show. He does some good stuff too. I was just on a podcast with him and he he started to focus on things. And I know some people may not agree with him fully, but I think he follows politics well. Um, obviously, uh, People watch and listen to Meat Eater. Um, certainly dabble into it. Uh, take it for what it's worth. You may not agree with all the opinions. Sometimes I don't agree with all their political statements, but it's good that they do talk about politics. You know, it's important. Um, and a few others. Yeah, I think uh, there are a few people talking about it and uh, hopefully more will. I hope people listening and if they're curious about starting a podcast and they want to talk about what's happening in their state. Actually, I take that back. There is a great um Another good podcast, Driftwood Outdoors. They talk about Missouri politics. Brandon Butler, he's really great. Um, he's a fellow Professional Outdoor Media Association Pinnacle Award recipient like me, and he focuses on uh, Missouri issues and legisla- legislature issues there. So he's really good. He talks about this as well. Um, and there are a handful of others. But yeah, I think if, if you don't see anyone following these issues in your backyard, you should start a podcast related to your state because people are going to be looking and seeking out that type of stuff. Yeah. And you openly, don't, Hey, and I'll be the first to tell you, you don't have to be an expert at anything to start a podcast. Oh, <laughs> um, I didn't work in Capitol Hill, but I just was, you know, I come from a more journalist opinion maker background, but I've learned the issues I've yeah. sought out. I've sought out policymakers. I've sought out people who work in public policy and you can learn to be an expert. I never claim I'm an expert and you shouldn't claim you're an expert because unless you, you've you actually engaged on these issues directly, right. legislatively, you're not an expert, but it's okay to admit you're not an expert, but you want to learn more. You're curious. You're this, you're that. Yeah. Plus you can use, you can use your platform um, to tease out your arguments and uh, as a, a way to garner, you know, conversations with people. Yeah. Nobody is entitled to public policy. I think there should be a multitude of views. Um, you can interpret them however you want to, but I think as more people engage in the process through means like podcasting and podcasting is great. It's exploded so much. And I would hope more outdoor enthusiasts do look to podcasting and not so much the storytelling, which is great. There are a lot of storytelling wilderness podcasts, but 
if you want to be action oriented, you can start it. I think it'd be great to see 50 podcasts from 50 state capitals about what's happening on conservation and energy and environment fronts. I would love to see that because it's really hard to seek out outlets that talk about it from a objective lens. So I would encourage anyone listening, if they have questions, they can contact me and I know they can speak to you. You're pretty adept at editing and making podcasts as well. But I've learned through my own endeavors that it's important to share knowledge and encourage others to get into this market. It's a valuable tool. I think it's a great way for communication. People want to go beyond the sound bites. And I would hope more people do start podcasts that follow what happens in the legislatures regarding our issues. Yeah. And if you do do that, um, obviously you can use um, Gabriella's uh, uh, you know, podcast as a, as a kind of a, a yeah, base. Of- anytime. Yeah. And uh, I will, if, if you are committed to doing that in, in your state or for locally or whatever you want, um, I will offer free consultation <laughs> to allow you to um, get, get your podcast uh, started off the ground. So talk about duck hunting. I really wanted to play. I know you said we are a little bit limited on time, but I really wanted to talk about the duck blind wars really and <laughs> my experience duck hunting to fit it in if, if you had time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, <laughs> We were talking a little bit about this and I've done a little bit of duck hunting. I went with a married couple friend of mine who are phenomenal and what a baptism by fire experience that was because we went out when it was the bomb cyclone on the East coast. I don't know if you remember hearing that about three years ago, it was actually around this time, funny enough. And what a great way to be baptized into duck hunting when a bomb cyclone (laughs) winter catastrophic event is on the horizon. Uh, and, and you get your first duck and you just kind of see what transpires. I remember it was such a beautiful sunrise. It was like this ruby red, yellow, orange sunrise. It was cold, but I had all the right clothing. I was in great company. We had the most wonderful duck dogs uh, with us. And I learned about these different duck wars, about people torching blinds on public waters, um, how the demand for space was so high on these wildlife management areas. And I had no idea that people were so kind of dedicated and somewhat extreme (laughs) in their pursuit of, you know, prime duck hunting access. And I found that to be so interesting and kind of perplexing in a sense. And I think more people should try to fix that. (laughs) Like I didn't realize it was so wedded and, and so, uh, kind of uh, controversial in how people want to access. And and that's really interesting that the demand is so high to go duck hunting in Virginia and elsewhere. I don't know if other states have these people torching their blinds or torching their this or like threatening them, which it kind of sounds like out of like a TV series or like a uh, kind of like crime <laughs> crime series or, or something out of the movies. I was like, this does not seem real that people would resort to these kind of drastic means. So people sometimes take duck hunting way too seriously and kind of uh, embrace extremist elements. And I hope people don't do that, but it, it is kind of perplexing and, and fascinating that they do. But I hope to go duck hunting again. I haven't gone in three years, but it was a memorable hunt and kind of understanding the dimensions to it was super interesting. But like I said, a, a great baptism by fire event hunting for ducks when a polar vortex was about to hit. So yeah, people have experiences like that. more calm experiences, but I think even with experiences, you know, with interesting climate experiences or weather experiences patterns, um, it's a great way to have a memorable hunt and to remember your first time doing that type of hunting. Absolutely. Well, anytime you want to hunt the Midwest, let me know. I'll definitely take you up on the offer if it presents itself. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Gabriella Hoffman, um, where can people find you? 
I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. I'm starting to populate my channel more with outdoor content and talking about different subjects. So follow me there. It's pretty easy to find. I have like close to 700 followers. Super, super easy to find. I also have my website, GabriellaHoffman.com. My podcast, District of Conservation. I write about our issues on townhall.com. And sometimes I am uh, disseminating my views to other platforms and publications, but those are my go-tos. I host a YouTube series called Conservation Nation with a free market environmental group I work with. We're going to be re-upping that hopefully in the coming months, despite COVID. Um, so you can find me doing some storytelling there as well in a more official capacity, but I'm all over the place. You can find me on Google and I would love to connect with anyone who has questions, who wants to learn more, who wants to engage better in the legislative process, storytelling, if they want to learn more about outdoor writing opportunities through organizations like that. If you want to become an outdoor storyteller, I am all ears and I would love to be a voice and a perspective. Excellent. All right. Thanks for coming on Gabriella and we will see you guys next week. Thank you for having me, Ben. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the foul front waterfowl podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the foul front waterfowl podcast group where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like and we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners so all right stay safe out there and we will see you next week stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv